We're going to be looking uh, tonight in uh, John chapter 15 in a message I call Stumbling into Help. Stumbling into Help, you'll see why. John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus said, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. John chapter 14, 15, and 16 are a trilogy of chapters where Jesus is talking about the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit. We, of course, know that the Holy Spirit was here in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, you see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God moving, brooding over the face of the deep. And uh, so it wasn't that the Holy Spirit uh, uh, just suddenly appeared on the scene. Uh, He was here in the Old Testament. He had a ministry to fulfill. Uh, the, Old, the New Testament tells us about a lot of things, and certainly we see it in the Old Testament. I, I, I like that Old Testament character, Samson, not because we hold him up as a role model, but because over and over the Bible said the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And you know, Samson was a pretty nasty critter. I mean, he was just not a nice guy. And, uh, and yet in spite of his failures, uh, God was able to use him, empower him, and bring him into victory after victory. None of us want to end up like Samson. Uh, Samson won the biggest victory he ever won when he died. Uh, that, that's really not the way we want to end up. We'd like to be able to win some victories for the Lord and stay in the battle. That uh, Samson died with the Philistines. But over and over again, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Spirit of the Lord came on David. I mean, it was example after example of how the Holy Spirit was working in the Old Testament. Simon Peter told us that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The very existence of the Old Testament is an indication that the Holy Spirit was here and He was operating. People were saved in the Old Testament times. They were saved by faith. They were saved by faith in the coming Messiah. And the very fact that they were saved is a proof that the Holy Spirit was here and and working. Because Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's in John 3. That which is born in the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So people were Born of the Spirit, they were saved, they stayed saved. The Spirit was working in the Old Testament. But there was something deficient. Uh, And we know that because God was promising through the prophet Jeremiah that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was coming to a close and it was going to be replaced by a new one. And the chief characteristic of that new covenant was that God was going to be at work in the hearts of people to give us a new heart, he said. I'll give you a new heart. And uh, John the Baptist knew about that too. Of course, he had studied the prophets. So when he introduced Jesus, what did he say? He will baptize you with fire and with 
the Holy Spirit. See, they knew something was coming. Something new was coming. The prophet Joel told them about it. And I'm, I'm just reeling these things off for you tonight. Uh, because Just to remind us. When we're talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, we're not talking about how the Holy Spirit was not here before. He was. But remember what Joel prophesied. Simon Peter quoted him on the day of Pentecost. This is what Joel was talking about when he said, This is that which was spoken unto you by the prophet Joel. And what was it? Joel said, I will pour out my spirit upon what? All flesh. Not just on the David and the Elijahs and the Elishas and the Moseses and the Aaron's and not just on a few, but on all. And your sons and your daughters, on all flesh. There was something new that was coming in the New Testament. There was a new ministry of the Holy Spirit coming and here in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, he's praying about that. Knowing what was about to befall, or teaching about that, knowing what was about to befall then his disciples. John chapter 17, we've seen, is that high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed. He knew what they were about to face. And so, though Jesus would have his immediate audience in mind as he was teaching them about how he was going away, but he was going to send the Comforter. The Holy Spirit would come. and He would not leave them orphaned or abandoned, but he would come. He would be with them, and he would be in them. So though he had his followers, his immediate audience in mind, he also looked beyond them. John 17, he prayed not just for these, but he said, for everyone who would believe on me because of their word or because of their testimony or because of their preaching. And since Jesus included that in the audience, then he would also include all of those who would be a part of his forever family, looking ahead to all those who would believe, including you and I, would become a part of his church. He knew what his immediate audience obviously was about to go through as they watched his betrayal and arrest. After all, he was speaking on the night before all of that played out. They were thinking about his kingdom rule. Jesus was thinking about his death on the cross. They were talking about giving the kingdom to Israel. Jesus was talking about his suffering and the cup. They were thinking about living and reigning with him. And we know that because in Luke chapter 22 and verse 24 and other passages, the Bible tells us that the, the, the disciples were arguing among themselves over who was going to be the greatest, who was going to be in charge. James and John asked for matching thrones and even brought their mother into the game. Matthew chapter 20 verse 20. And so here in our text, Jesus emphasizes the commandment to love one another. This was a time for these guys to be standing together and not arguing and fighting among themselves. And by the way, His church, His church, His people, His church, His churches have never got to the place where we could say, okay, 
everything's going so good, we can sit down and fight a while now. We can argue and hate each other and be mad. We've never got to that place. You know why? Because we've been under the gun the whole time. The enemy's out there. We're fighting for the souls of men. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. You don't even have to look. You got hands down there. Yep, I'm flesh and blood and bone. Yeah, that's me. Uh, you look at that person down. Yeah, they're flesh and blood too. You know what? They're not our enemy if they're flesh and blood. How do we know that? Ephesians 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We don't fight people. We fight for people. We fight the enemy. We talked about that darkness this morning. We fight the enemy for people. We fight him with the power of the truth of the gospel. And so in our text tonight, we see that Jesus would have his day and, and, and the world would have its day. And then, oh, oh, would come that marvelous Sunday morning. Yeah, that was just a few days ahead, John 14, 15, 16, 17, just a few days. Death, burial, resurrection. world would have its day. This is your hour, Jesus said. And the kingdom of darkness, this is your time. But Jesus was going to have his day, and he did. So he knew what was coming, and he also knew that the death, burial, and resurrection was not going to be the end of all this. His resurrection would both empower them and endanger them, and he knew it. The preaching of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ put all of these men in mortal danger and millions more after them. Jesus knew it. He was sending them into the fray. He knew it. He knew it was going to be a battle. He knew it. He knew there was both an immediate context and a far, far reaching context as he looked out over all of the people who would ever believe on his name because of the truth of the gospel. He would send us all out into the same fray. He knew the world then and the world today is full of people who hate Jesus and hate his people. It's in the text, John 15, 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. You know, the opposition to Jesus and his word is inexcusable. He's going to go on and make that point very clearly in verse 22 of John 15. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated. Somebody preached about that this morning. 
the incredible hardness of the hearts of humanity. That they have seen, I've done the works that nobody else did. You're like casting out 2,000 demons in one whack. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now have they seen and also hated both me and my father. They didn't just reject him, they hated him. And they hated God. This happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. No excuse. That's what Jesus said. No excuse. The opposition to Jesus and the opposition to the gospel is inexcusable. We might occasionally think that the punishment that is offered to those who refuse to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that punishment is eternity in hell. We might think that's a little harsh. Until we remember what Jesus did. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 19, the Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself and has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. How did he do it? He died on the cross. He suffered and bled and died. He walked among men and lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, was buried but didn't stay buried. He rose again victorious. Had he not done all of that? That might be one thing, but he did do all of that. And for God, God, God was in Christ. For God to do all of that, only for men to hate him. God gave the verdict, eternity in hell. No escape. No excuse. But after seeing all the works that Jesus did, after seeing then that ultimate work of his death on the cross for their redemption, the verdict of humanity was repeated by Simon Peter as he stood there after healing that uh, crippled man in the gate of the temple. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. We don't have any silver and gold. I don't have any change for you. But what I do have, I'm going to give you. Rise up and walk. And he did. And when Simon Peter went in and preached to them then, he just he didn't cut them any slack. I have to love Simon Peter. I, I like good old hard preaching that just gets right up in there. He didn't cut him a bit of slack at all. What did he say? You denied the Holy One. You instead desired a murderer to be given unto you. You cried out for a murderer. And you denied the Holy and the Just One. And then he goes right on and just pours it to him. You killed the Prince of Life. Wonder they didn't kill him. You think about the Simon Peter that was cowering before a little girl, warming his hands by the fire, saying, I didn't know anything about him, but here he is, standing before the whole bunch and telling them, You killed the Prince of Life. He's roaring like a lion now. A good demonstration of the work of the Holy Spirit that's come upon him. 
He's reminding them, you see, that every act of unbelief, that every act of rejection is an inexcusable act then of high treason against heaven's king. Punishment by death, eternal death in a place called hell. High treason against heaven's king. I spent some time this week reading, I just ran across it by accident, about some people who described themselves as unbelieving, unbelieving. Uh, they were once believers according to their testimony, but they were in the act now of unbelieving, of deprogramming, some called it. They had followed Jesus, but now they were going to unfollow Jesus um, that's a Facebook social media world for you. We're going to unfollow Jesus. What was interesting to me was to see the time and energy they were spending to chronicle their rejection of someone they decided had never really existed at all. I mean, it wasn't enough for them just to do it. Right? We don't believe in Jesus anymore. Don't believe he ever lived, really. Just a made-up story. That they just went on and on and on and on and on about all the reasons why they were not going to believe in him anymore and all the evidence they had for not believing on him anymore and why they were going to unfollow Jesus. It's like they had to list all of, some kind of indictment against him. The reason why that stood out to me is that I was, I'm rather proud to be able to say tonight that I've never spent one minute to write one sentence about why I don't believe in the Easter Bunny. I don't believe in the Easter Bunny. I don't. You know why I don't believe in the Easter Bunny? Because he doesn't exist. He doesn't. Some of you might want to cover your kids' ears. or uh, It just doesn't. Yeah, I'm not going to write all these papers and blogs and put it all over the Internet. Uh, uh, we don't do that with something that we... Why are they arguing so hard against something they don't believe exists? Maybe... They don't believe quite as much as they say they don't believe. You reckon? Who are they trying to convince? Well, in our text tonight here, John chapter 16, he was talking about bringing all this into a place of focus. All these things were going to happen. All these things are going to happen to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I've told you that when the time comes, when it plays out, when you see it happening, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You see, Jesus was concerned and rightly so about them stumbling. Not in the immediate context. That was already settled. Jesus had already told them, all of you will be offended. All of you are going to stumble because of me this time. It was going to get them all, and it did. All of them. But he was thinking long term, and not only about this immediate audience, but thinking about us as well. The, the possibility of stumbling, the possibility of being offended in this time that was to come. You see, Jesus was here on the scene. He would arise from the dead and he would come bursting out of the tomb victorious and he would hang around afterwards for 40 days. So why didn't he just stay? I mean, he's already demonstrated his power over the forces of the world and the consequences of, of sin. Why didn't he just uh, 
speak the word like he did with that legion of demons and just do away with the Roman legions. Poof. Why? If he stayed 40 days, why isn't he still here? Why didn't he just go ahead and set up his kingdom? It wasn't the young Simon Peter, but the elder Simon Peter writing uh, after a lifetime of service and study and revelation and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It gives us some insight into why that didn't happen. He said in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him as was written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand. <laughs> Boy, that's the truth. Paul wrote some stuff hard to understand. I'm glad Simon Peter said that. Which untaught and unstable people twist, distort to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away into the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. You see, before Simon Peter finished his course, he was warning about the same thing Jesus warned them about on that last night that he spoke to them. About stumbling. About losing their ability to be steadfast. About being offended. About giving up. Jesus warned about days of opposition and persecution. Simon Peter warned that days would also be filled with unstable people. Unstable people spiritually who are peddling lies and who are twisting and distorting scriptures. Meanwhile, Simon Peter tells us the long-suffering of God would be at work. So why didn't Jesus just established his kingdom after all he had demonstrated his power over the forces of evil, demonstrated his power over the creation, suffered, bled, died, buried, rose again, stayed here for 40 days. Why didn't he just stay, set up the kingdom and go on? Well, Simon Peter tells us why Jesus has ushered in a period of the long-suffering of God that would bring about salvation, a time we are still living in today. I've told you before, I'll tell you again tonight. <laughs> I'm glad that Jesus didn't set up the millennial reign all the way back then. Because that's only a thousand years and I'd have never been born probably. Neither would any of you. I know I look old, but I'm not that old. I, I don't go, you know, God had a lot of people. The long-suffering of God was going to operate. A lot of people would have the opportunity then of, of being born and living and believing and being saved and being a part then of His forever family. We live in that day of long-suffering and salvation. <clears throat> At this time of long-suffering and salvation, Jesus said it, Simon Peter said it too, was going to be marked by continuing opposition and Jesus even told us that he was telling us this ahead of time so that when it happened, he'd remember, we'd remember it. Oh, yeah, Jesus told us. He told us this. In the world, you'll have tribulation. There's an old saying, ignorance is bliss. If somebody asks you, do you want the good news or the bad news first, what do you say? I'm, 
I always say the same thing. Go ahead and give me the good news first. I might die for you. Give me the bad news and I won't ever know it. Uh, I've got some bad news to tell you, Brother Rich. You want me to tell you before church or after church? After, of course. After. Uh, There's a lot of things people tell. I'd, I'd just as soon not ever know. Ignorance is bliss. But we, that don't matter. Jesus didn't give us that option. He told us ahead of time what was going to happen. We also say forewarned is forearmed. Jesus told us about a lot of things that were going to happen, not the least of which of the things he says about his return so that we'd not be caught off guard. But in this case, he's talking about some things that would keep us from stumbling. Help us get back on our feet when we fall, when we're stumbling. I'm, I'm giving you this so you won't stumble. I'm giving you this so you won't be offended. So this is something that's going to catch you when you stumble. Therefore, the message, uh, stumbling into help. It's hard times coming, Jesus said it. Simon Peter affirmed it. But there's something else coming. The comforter. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I want you to follow the thinking here. This passage, since the long-suffering of God was at work, as Simon Peter has told us, and Jesus was already showing them that, uh, he's about to go away. Uh, why didn't he just stay? Because if I don't go away, the, the helper will not come. And, and the coming of the helper was better. It was better. Since this ministry of reconciliation was going to operate through God's people, His preachers, and His churches around the world, there was something better than the physical presence of Jesus. Bound to one place and one time. There would be a time for that. To know what a time it's going to be. The Bible just gives us a glimpse or two about the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand year reign of Christ, but it's enough that it's just amazing. To think about. So many things that aren't right in the world. But you know what? Jesus is going to make them right. There will be a time, you see, for his physical presence in the world again. It was not yet. Now there's something better. Something to your advantage. The Holy Spirit. If we were on our own in all this, it would be impossible for us to be effective. But we're not on our own. But Jesus was concerned that we understood that there'd, there'd be a time when we would stumble. There'd be a time when we'd think it's hopeless. There'd be a time when it would look like we weren't doing any good. There was a time. There'd be a time when the situation seemed impossible. There'd be a time when there'd be rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. And it's crippling to us. It's crippling to our faith. Jesus knew that. 
So he wanted us to know that there's something more at work here, something more than just what you and I are able to do, and something more than even just what we can see going on. Because the Comforter is going to come. He is with you. The Helper is going to come. He is with you. He will be in you. And to keep you from stumbling, to to grab you and hold you up, to keep you going. Jesus just gives us a glimpse of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our world. We look around at 5 o'clock on a Sunday night. Here we are at Faith Baptist Church. And, you know, we've got a good crowd. I'm glad all of you are here. I am thankful for every single one of you to be here. But, you know, we could get real discouraged about the other thirteen or 1,400 or so members of our church that ain't here. Sorry, I shouldn't have said ain't. That aren't here. It slipped out. It can be discouraging to us if we start thinking about it. We're so few. The world's so huge. But the Holy Spirit has come. He is our helper. And it is helpful for us to know that the Holy Spirit is working. Without Him, we'd never never make it. But there are three things that Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is doing in the world right now. And, and three things that are essential for him to do. That mankind is stunningly ignorant of. So ignorant of. That mankind as a whole would never, ever, ever be able to see the things that Jesus describes in this passage. <clears throat> Without this work of the Holy Spirit, no one would ever be saved. But the Holy Spirit is working. And he is working, as Jesus said in this passage, to convict Or to convince mankind of three things. Of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. People would never know the truth about these if it weren't for the work of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is out there giving people this truth. It's another reason why that their rejection is so inexcusable. Let's see what the Holy Spirit is doing. First of all, Jesus said in John 16 and 8, He will convict or convince the world of sin because they do not believe in Me. Uh, Mankind would never really come to the truth about their own sin and the consequences of that sin. uh, I've waited almost my whole life to hear a governmental official, a president of the United States, a governor of our state even, I'd settle for the governor, who would stand up and say, you know, the real problem in the state of Arkansas right now is we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. Wouldn't that be an, an amazing thing? We've sinned against God and we need to repent. Some national calamity happens. Wouldn't it be great to see a president who would say, you know... Our problem is here in America is that we have sinned against the God who made us and created us. It's almost like sin is, is not on the menu anywhere. We'll blame just about anything before we'll blame sin. And we'll acknowledge just about anything before we'll say, I have sinned. And you look at a world today and look at the absolute horror that people have over being called a sinner of all things and of admitting that what I'm doing is a sin. 
Think about it. In the midst of all of that, here's the work of the Holy Spirit. And what's he doing? He is convicting the world of sin. Men would never, ever come to the truth about sin if it weren't for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. If you're saved tonight, then you know what it was like for the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin. You have felt that horror of your sin down deep in your very soul. You understood that you had sinned against God. If you didn't understand that, you've not been saved. You can't be saved until you understand that you're a sinner. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells us Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? Sinners. Sinners. And so it's only that person who can say, I have sinned, that can say, Lord, save me. Be merciful to me because I'm a sinner. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit then to convict the world of sin. And in our world today, that is his greatest job. Sometimes we try to help the Holy Spirit do that work. I've been guilty of that a few times myself. Just trying to force somebody to acknowledge their sin or to admit their sin, to admit that they're wrong. I don't know if it was Ben Franklin or who it was that said it, but I've quoted it a whole lot of times. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. You can argue somebody to the point where they can't argue with you anymore, but it doesn't mean that you've changed their mind or changed their heart. Only the Holy Spirit, folks, can do that. We give the truth of the gospel. Christ Jesus died for sinners. Who convicts them of their sin? That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. He also works in to convict or convince men of righteousness. In verse 10, Jesus tells us why. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. You see, we know that all the way back in the Old Testament, God was declaring there is none righteous. Oh, by the way, not even one. Not even one. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in our sight. But humanity has a different view of righteousness. They, they see righteousness in steps and stages. Well, there's a, the, the Mother Teresa kind of righteousness and the Billy Graham kind of righteousness. And then there's the, this kind of righteousness. And, uh, uh, you know, then there's uh, Glenn Campbell kind of righteousness or, the, uh, or, or, or some of these other guys. Uh, you know, the, uh, there's the I believe in God and I love you mom kind of righteousness. And, you know, it just, well, I, I, God knows I'm not perfect. But I'm not as bad as so-and-so righteousness. You see, we, we see everything kind of relative. I'm not everything I could be, should be, ought to be, but I, I'm, I'm not as bad as some. But you see, God sees a very absolute standard of righteousness and holiness. Who is that standard? His has, he has a name. It is Jesus Christ. And the standard of righteousness that God sets before humanity is not that we would be as good as this person or that we would be as better as our neighbor. Uh, there was an old story that uh, I've thought about many times uh, about the, the two friends who were out on a hike and all of a sudden a bear came up behind them. And his buddy called his other buddy and said, you better run. And he took off running. He said, man, you can't outrun the bear. He said, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. 
old story. Still true. Thank you for chuckling a little. It is kind of funny. You see, that's the view a lot of people have of righteousness. I just got to be better than you. If I'm better than you, then God's judgment will fall on you, and I'll, I'll, I'll get out by the skin of my teeth. But God's standard of righteousness is set by Jesus Christ. In Him was no sin. The verdict was passed by Pontius Pilate. I find no fault in him. But when Jesus returned to the Father, that standard of righteousness was was no more. There was nobody who could even make a claim on that. He had finished his work. He had established that standard of righteousness. So that the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short. Fall short of what? The glory of God. We all fall short. The Holy Spirit then is at work in the world to convince men of their sin. uh, But also to convince them of the truth about righteousness, how that we've not only sinned, as the Bible said, but we all fall short. So that we can look maybe back at our life and say, well, you know, I haven't lied much. I haven't stolen much. I've been kind of faithful to all my obligations. I pay my bills. I'm a pretty good guy. We could say, I don't do this. I don't do that. But nobody is going to brag about their standard of righteousness. Have we done everything that God requires of us? Not that whether we avoid the things he says no to, but have we done all the things that he requires? (laughs) Nobody is going to make that claim. The Holy Spirit then works to convict men of their sin. All the times that we've done the things that God told us not to do. He convinces men or convicts men of righteousness. All the ways that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And then comes the big one. The Holy Spirit convicts men of judgment to come. Of judgment, verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged... And if the leader of all of this is under judgment, and he is, if he has already been defeated, and he has, then those who choose him are going to get the same thing he gets, judgment. The assurance, then, of judgment to come. I think, in a way, that's what all those people were arguing about who were claiming to be unbelieving. We're unbelieving. We're unfollowing. Jesus. I think that's really what they were arguing to try to convince themselves of. That there really isn't a judgment to come. That there really is nothing to fear. That we'll live and die and be dead. As if that had any great appeal to anybody. But the Holy Spirit is at work convicting the world of Reality of judgment to come. You know, we see this play out in, in time after time after time in our community and our dealings with other people. We see it all the time. Every time something big and bad happens in our nation, 
You'll see people start getting scared. Is this judgment? Is this... They, they, they know somehow instinctively they know. Though they might argue against it and deny it, they, they know there's something, there's something. There's judgment to come. It played out in the life of the Apostle Paul as did so many of the principles that we see in the New Testament. It played out in the life of the Apostle Paul as he stood before Felix and Drusilla. Uh, Felix and Drusilla were well-known, renowned for their lifestyle and their practices. And uh, no doubt as the Roman proconsul in Judea, he and Drusilla would have made quite a figure as they walked into that council hall. and They brought in Paul up out of the jail, probably in chains and bound. And that old preacher... He didn't look like much compared to Felix and Drusilla. But the Bible tells us that he reasoned with them of righteousness. He preached to them three things. Of righteousness, temperance, self-control, and of judgment to come. He talked to them, you see, about a righteousness that they did not possess. They were not nice people. He reasoned to them of a temperance that they did not practice. They, they had no self-control. They did whatever they wanted to do to whoever they wanted to do and however they wanted. They, they had no self-control. But it was that last thing that came as he reasoned with them then, not just of righteousness and temperance, but of judgment to come. And the Bible said, Felix trembled. Trembled and said, Go your way. I'll <laughs> sound familiar, kind of like what we saw this morning. Go, go your way some other time. Felix trembled. We know how ruthless a man Felix was. We know how powerful he was. We know what kind of life he lived. The very fact that he trembled it says something about the power that the Holy Spirit wills. Listen to me tonight, folks. There's going to be times when in the midst of the hatred and the opposition and the difficulty of the work, there'll be times where we'll be tempted to quit and give up. There'll be times where we'll give out and give in or we'll be tempted to be stumble. Things will come and maybe trip us up. I want you to know that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, is given to us so that when we're stumbling and tripping and falling, it's not the physical hands of Jesus that catch us. It's the Holy Spirit who catches us. We fall onto Him. When we can't keep going, we rely on Him. When we don't seem like we're doing anything, we remind ourselves of what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's working. He's in you. And He is in the world. And thank God for that tonight. When we stumble, we don't just fall. We fall on Him. Holy Spirit, the Helper, who picks us up and keeps us going. I hope you know Him tonight. hope you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you have, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And He'll help you through if you'll let Him. Let's stand together, please.